What up, Oasis people? Can you believe that will be the last time you probably ever see those cringy text messages? Uh, maybe we'll bring it back for another series. But the thing is, this is our last week of Bad Blood, which it feels like to me it went so fast, and maybe for you it does too. But tonight we're diving into marriage. And before I even get into anything, I recognize that most of us, and by most I mean nearly all of us in the room, are not married. But trust me when I say there's something in this for you tonight. So stick with me. Our, I've been wrestling this last week. I feel like our generation is experiencing something new. Like our generation, as in like our group of age, like the people who are 18 to 25-ish, we are experiencing something brand new that no generation before us has ever experienced. And no, I'm not talking about like COVID. Like we don't need another sermon on the vid. Like, come on, let's move on. But I'm not, sorry, insensitive. COVID still thing. But I'm not willing to preach a message on it anymore. So moving on. But otherwise, I'm not talking about the digital age. Like, we don't need another message telling us about the, the phones, how they're ruining our brains. We're actually going to preach that in the next series. But d- ignore that. <laughs> what I actually want to talk about, and this is like the, the hard part of it, is as I was wrestling this last week, I feel like for the first time, our generation is experiencing something new when it comes to marriage. And it's the fact that very rarely... Can you find a person nowadays who hasn't been directly or indirectly impacted by divorce? That I just want to sample the group here for a second. And don't raise your hands until I tell you to, because then it could get weird. But I would like you to raise your hand if you know someone, either your parents, your grandparents, a family member, or a friend's parents, or someone, a colleague, a coworker that you know has gotten a divorce. And you can put your hands down, but... This is kind of a radical idea that really for generations gone by, this is, there, there wouldn't have been a room full of hands like that. But all of a sudden, we're dealing with this blowout because all of a sudden, we're stuck with this mess that a lot of times, for many of us, we didn't have anything to do with. And as I was wrestling with this, I started to do some research and try and find some statistics to kind of just to see, to grasp what was really going on. And so one of the things I found most helpful was there was a law firm out in California, and they went and found studies from all across the last 10 years. And they compiled those studies data from 115 different studies into their one database. And as I read statistic after statistic, I was just struck by how wide divorce has spread through our generation. The one we say first, and the one we've heard the most, is almost 50% of all U.S. marriages will end in divorce. But I also was struck by the fact that half of all children before the age of 18 will witness a divorce. Not only that, the divorce rate shows that out of 1,000 women, 17 has been divorced. That's double the number that it was in 1960. That a divorce happens every 42 seconds in America. That means in the hour that we'll be together, there will be about 86 different divorces, which is over 14,000 divorces this week and over 750,000 divorces this last year. Our generation is experiencing something new and it's not good. But why? I am not content to hear those statistics, to stand in a room like this, to wrestle this last week with the message and not come to a why. I feel like we deserve answers. That is, we're the people who keep having to deal with this. We deserve to know why. And that becomes the dark side of marriage. That there is a hardship that comes with being married. But there's also this just difficult side that is divorce. And I want to give you the main reason I feel like that is right off the bat. 
The main reason I feel like we as a generation are dealing with this problem of divorce is because our culture has redefined marriage. And I choose those words very, very, very intentionally. That it's not a question of if we are redefining marriage, as if it's some ongoing process. Actually, I believe that was our parents' generation. That from the 60s to the 90s, they asked the questions, they poked the buttons, they kind of pulled it apart. And now we've been embraced with this situation that culture has now handed you a definition. And for you to step away from it, for you to start to ask the questions is wrong. Because our culture has redefined marriage. They say marry whoever you want. They say do marriage however you want. And to be honest, our culture says end it whenever you want. And I get why they say these things. And and here, let me try to explain it to you, and you'll catch on. But our culture is obsessed with freedom. And for the most part, freedom is a good thing. But it, it happens that our culture is obsessed with freedom because we quickly equate it to happiness. That the less restriction, the more openness, the more availability we have to do whatever we want and pick our own path and be our own person leads us to more happiness. And so they apply that to marriage. But are we happier now when the the marriage statistics have changed when the things are starting to to flow in are we now happier with this more freedom in 2020 nbc news did a survey and found that only 14 percent of americans could label themselves as happy and marriage is hard and in a statistic like that I, i recognize marriage is not the only thing playing in there But oftentimes we feel like if we can get married, we can find that significant other. If we can just make the have the family, we can achieve the American dream. That'll bring us happy. That'll bring us this fulfillment. And so all the while we're wrestling with marriage is so hard. Maybe you've never heard that, but I felt like I heard that constantly as I was going into marriage. It's so hard. Man, that first year, so hard. Then you turn to another person, they're like, the second year, unbelievable. Then they're like, oh, just wait till you get to five years. It's so hard. And it's like, but just wait till it's 10 years and you start having kids and oh, marriage is so hard. And it's like over and over and over again, I heard this message that marriage is hard. And so maybe you've heard that. But tonight I want to start with a, a different kind of tone. I actually want to give marriage some positivity. Like, I want to give us a little bit of marriage hype. Like, can we, as a a generation, as the people maybe just here tonight, start to believe that marriage is good again? And so I'll use my experience, and I'll try not to cry. (laughs) I get to come home every single day to my best friend. (laughs) But not only that, that when I come home to that person, she is my greatest encourager, that whether I am on the mountaintop and everything is going well, she will stand beside me as my cheerleader. Or if I'm on the mat and everything's falling apart and I have hit rock bottom, she will pick me up. That when I come home, I have one of the greatest challengers. That she will call me on all my stuff. She will sharpen me and help me pursue the Lord. And that list could go on and on and on. But you hear me talk all the time. So I'm going to invite up Allie. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> She's not coming up. But I did ask her this last week. I said, what makes marriage good? And she thought about it because she's introspective. I will just blurt things out. She'll, she'll think about it first. And she thought about it and she said, you know what? I just have the most perfect husband. He's never done anything wrong. Like, okay, no, she didn't say that. But she did say some good things. She said stuff like this. She said, when it comes to marriage, 
there becomes this beauty in the mundane. That too often we live life from mountain peak to mountain peak, or that we go from mountain peak to valley, and we're just living from extremes. But in marriage, there's someone there all the time. And there's a beauty in the mundaneness of that. She also said, you learn in marriage what it looks like to love and to serve someone deeper than probably any other relationship you could ever have. The last thing she said, that just kind of blew me away because she's super wise if you ever get to meet her. She said, when we experience marriage, we're getting to step into something God called really good. That in Genesis, when God made humanity and he invited Adam and Eve into the garden with him, he called it very good. And yet, despite all of that, despite the goodness and beauty and hype we can try to give to marriage, it still is hard. And while it's hard, while we're trying to figure out this this marriage thing, our culture is telling us their definition. And we don't even feel like we have the space or the freedom to challenge it. I want to tell you, culture should never have had the authority to do that. The only person that should ever have had the authority to tell you what marriage is is God. And that's because he designed it. God gets to define marriage because he created it. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at this Genesis account. We've seen a couple of the different stories. We've, we've dove into the couple of the verses. And tonight, I want to look at one more. Because in Genesis 2.24, God says something. And in one sentence, he gives us three purposes for marriage. He says this. He says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. One verse, three things. The first thing God says here is in marriage, when he has designed it, he's made it male and female. And now that's the only time I'm going to say that tonight. And the, the reason for that is, is I don't have adequate time to give to this point of God's design. But my invitation to you is, if this, if this is something you've wrestled with, that God's design for marriage is male and female, if that's something that doesn't sit right with you, if that's something you, you, you just feel like you want to chat about or learn more of why God says that, I am willing to have that conversation, and I'd actually love it. And I have a bunch of people in our leadership team alongside me who would also go there with you. And so don't shy away from God's word. Dive in. Try to wrestle with it, even if it doesn't sit right with you. Otherwise, there's two other things it says in this verse. It says marriage is self-sacrificing. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. That there's something about marriage that we must sacrifice to achieve it. And lastly, God says marriage is lifelong. Because when that man leaves his father and his mother, he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And later we'll learn that one flesh should never be separated. So as a people, tonight, I hope our goal is to start to redefine marriage how God instituted it. To start to step into his original design. One of the crazy things is I was looking through all of those statistics. I saw a couple that related to us as Christians. The first one was the divorce rate among American Christians is about 27%. Do you recognize that's 15 to 25% less than the American average? Dr. Jennifer Glass, a sociology professor who taught at Notre Dame, Iowa, USC, and the second greatest college in the world, University of Texas, Austin, Hookham. She said, one of the strongest predictors of divorce in a county is the prevalence and concentration of Protestant Christians in that area. 
And as the amount of Protestant Christians increases, the divorce rate plummets. And so I want to conjecture with you that maybe God knows what he's doing. That the people who claim to know him, who claim to be Jesus followers, who are supposed to be living by his design, are having some of the greatest success when it comes to marriage. And so for us to get back to this design, for us to maybe experience some of these statistics, I want us to reject consumerism, embrace commitment, and heal the hurt. First things first, we've got to reject consumerism. Consumerism is this fancy trend word kind of going around. But really what I want you to understand, it's, it, consumerism shows up and it asks the question, what's in it for me? That some of us, we maybe showed up here to Oasis tonight with a consumeristic kind of mentality thinking, oh, I wonder what's in it for me tonight. If you're there, okay, I get it. Well, sometimes we need to reject that consumerism. Consumerism also embraces this mindset that's self-focus. That it looks around a room like this, or it gets into a marriage, and it stops to see the other people, and again, it's self-focused. It's looking back at me. And it asks questions very rarely externally, but often internally. How is this person serving me, and how are they satisfying me? And as humans, those questions come natural to us. Because I don't know if you noticed, but we have needs. <laughs> that as holistic people, we've got social needs, relational needs, emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs, mental needs. Like That list can keep going on and on. That we as people are needy. And then we take that need and we bring it to someone else. And so often I see we take that need and we bring it to marriage. And we ask the question, what does this person have for me? How will they satisfy me? How will they serve me? But do you recognize a person was never meant to satisfy all those needs? That nobody can live up to that level. That's Jesus' job. That was what you were designed to do, to live into relationship with God and have him meet those needs. And so when we ask the question, what's in it for me? And we feel unsatisfied, it leaves us unhappy. And 60% of people, when they find that they're unhappy in marriage, they see divorce as a, very, a viable option. They think that divorce will bring the happiness back. Because maybe they got into the relationship thinking that that happiness was going to come from the fulfillment of a spouse. And I, again, I get how we get there. But we're believing a scheme of the enemy when we start to buy that lie. That the truth of God's word says something different. The truth of God's word says true life is found not in being served, but in serving others. That this was something Jesus taught and he lived. It was one of his most outrageous claims. That fulfillment, purpose, life is found not in acquiring, but in giving away. He didn't just teach it, he lived it. Mark 10, in verse 45, it says, For the Son of Man, which is what he calls himself, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. That Jesus found his purpose and his fulfillment and giving his life away. And he's trying to teach us, in marriage, outside of marriage, that your fulfillment and your purpose comes in giving away and in serving. There's this story that I've heard a couple of times, and it comes from a, a divorce lawyer. And he had had a woman come to him, and she was at her wit's end. That there was nothing she, he could say or do that could get her away from his office without filing the papers. 
that her husband, she felt like, had neglected her. He hadn't loved her. He hadn't served her. He hadn't cared for her. He hadn't seen her. He hadn't spoken. Like, the list went on and on of what she felt like her husband had done to her. And she was hurt and broken. And she came here as a final straw. She didn't want to be there, but it was, she was done. And the divorce lawyer was hearing her out, hearing all of these things. And he said, do you want your husband to feel some of the hurt that you're currently feeling? I'm convinced based on the question that he probably wasn't a Christian. But he, want, he, he pitched her the revenge speech. And she said, yeah. I want him just to feel a glimpse of what I feel in this moment at my lowest. And he said, so, what we're going to do is you're going to go away. And in a year, you're going to come back to me. And we're going to file the papers then. But over the next 365 days, what I want you to do is I want you to serve him and love him and speak highly of him, answer all of his questions, do anything he wants. Serve with all of your heart. Give him everything. And then in a year, come back and file, and it'll be like the greatest dagger in his back. And in that moment, he'll feel a little bit of what you feel. And she loved it. She loved the idea. She left. I mean, it's like toxic even listening to it. But she was so just excited about this idea of finally getting revenge. And she goes and she serves and she loves. And a year comes and the divorce lawyer calls her. He says, hey, I have it on my calendar. Today's the day. Are you ready? So you're never going to believe it. That I left and I started to serve. And something in me changed. That for some reason, I, I felt love again. And some reason, it just it started to click again. It started to come back to me. And, and, and you will not believe it, but somewhere along the last six months, my husband, he started to change. And he started to love me. And he started to serve me. And I cannot tell you that our marriage has ever been in a greater place than it is right now. So she never filed the paper. And she embraced, even though she didn't know it, this teaching of Jesus. That life and love is found in service and giving away. And while I love a good story like that, there's not a ton of stuff for us to grip onto. If you were to leave hearing this story about divorce, you're probably not going to know exactly what to do. And so I want to give us something to grip, something to hold on to, something to walk with, and maybe one day if we're, we're, we get married, we can practice service like Scripture teaches. And so if you have a Bible, you could turn to Ephesians 5. And we're going to look at Paul's instructions to Christian households. And in Paul's instructions, he writes 10 verses that becomes a how-to guide of marriage. It, it is beautiful. He starts in verse 21. He says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the first line. It's his opening sentence that some of us, we would maybe in academia call this his thesis. That this is where Paul is going. This is everything he's going to teach in the next nine verses summed up in one. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. It's this application of mutual submission. But I don't, know about, I don't know about you. Submission to me is kind of like a sketchy word. It's like, ah, you couldn't have picked like love each other or like uh, respect each other. Like, why'd you pick submission, Paul? That feels just wrong. And if you were to like Google this text and maybe put culture next to it, you'd find that culture labels a passage like this, text it. Because they'll look at it and they'll say, oh, the Bible degrades women. It's misogynistic. Not only that, it's outdated. They don't understand. Can't believe those Christians are actually living by that 2,000-year-old book. Like, are you kidding me? Well, let's see what Paul actually has to say to the women. 
In verses 22 through 24, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is Savior. Now as the the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now before we start to freak out, everybody calm down, take a deep breath, release some of that tension. What's Paul saying here? When Paul says, submit to your husband's wives, he says to do it as to the Lord. Now every single one of us in here who claims to be a Christian, you have a command to submit to the Lord. Every single one of you, that call is the same. That if you claim the name of Jesus, you claim him as Lord, and you must submit to him. And when we submit to Jesus, it looks a certain way. The first thing I think it looks like is it looks like we trust him. That who he says he is, we believe that. That the things he says he'll do, we believe that. And our trust in Jesus gives us a confidence that we can have this relationship with him. And that confidence leads us to a respect of him, that he is who he says he is. He has been to me who he says he is. He is fulfilling these promises. And it it arises in us some admiration. And all of those accumulate in love. That this, for every single one of us, is this call to submit to Christ, that it, it continues to build on each and every building block, this submission to love. And Paul says that, that's how you're meant to love your husband. You're supposed to trust him. That the person you married and committed to, he's the person you think he is. You're supposed to have this confidence in yourself and in him that he has character. He'll make the right decision. You can support him in that. It also continues and it goes, I can have this admiration and this respect, this love for him. And when when culture says we're pigeonholing marriages and saying, This is what it must look like. Paul is just giving you parameters. That nowhere in this text does it say you can't have an opinion. Nowhere in this text as a female does it say that you are less than. Nowhere in this text does not say in moments that there will be leadership. But instead he says, submit, respect, love, admire, take confidence, and do that in everything. And then he turns to the husbands. And he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul assumes you know something when he says that. And so I'm going to fill you in. That Paul assumes you know what the gospel is. And so here is the gospel, as plain as I can give it to you. That God made everything perfect. We broke that. But he did not abandon us. But yet, rather, he sent his own son to put on flesh and bone, to walk this earth, and to live a perfect life. And after living that perfect life, he traded it back for us. And we are the people who pinned him to the cross. That we are the people who killed Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That it does not say your name in the text, but the humanity story is of that. But the beauty part of the story is that he didn't stay there. That God raised him from the dead. That three days later, Jesus came from the dead and he lived here on earth again for a period of time, and then he ascended to heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming back to bring us all with him to rule in heaven again. That is the gospel message, and Paul assumes you know that. Because he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As Christ gave himself up for her. 
that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give, not to take. He came to die so that we may have life. The husband, this is your call, that in everything you are to lay your life down in service to your wife. That there are four words for love in the Greek. And the Greek is what this, this verse was originally written in. And one of those words is called the highest form of love. You want to know what word Paul uses to describe the husband's love for the wife? The gape, this radical, selfless, giving away, laying your life down kind of love. It's the word that's used to describe God's love for his people all throughout the New Testament. And so how do we serve wives? It looks like submitting. Husbands, it looks like submitting. And we do all of that because in verse 31, Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We do it because that was God's original design. Once we've rejected consumerism, we can start to embrace commitment. And commitment is wild. Like, there are still times, and, and this may sound weird, but, but hang on. There have been times I will sit in our living room, my wife and I, and I will look at her and I'll be like, we're going to be married for like ever. Like, like, commitment is crazy. Like, for all of my days, as long as the Lord lets me live and lets her live, we will be married together. Like, that is wild. And yet, in the midst of all that, as I'm trying to figure out this lifelong commitment, culture's telling me, you can actually end that whenever. If you guys could put that picture up. The Spirit of God does this kind of crazy thing. Uh... Whenever I'm sermon prepping, he'll just use random moments to like smack me with something I need to say. And so I'm on Instagram last week, and I flop over to the Explore page, which I shouldn't be at. We all know we shouldn't go to the Explore page. But I went to the Explore page, and this guy is sitting on my home screen. And it says, divorce is okay. Breaking up is okay. Starting over is okay. Moving on is okay. Being alone is okay. What is not okay is staying somewhere you're not valued and appreciated. To a picture like that, I could, I could agree with 90% of it. That I would never advise you to stay in a place where you're not valued and appreciated. But where my heart breaks for a picture like this is culture has placed marriage and divorce on the exact same level as dating and breaking up. That they have taken God's lifelong sacrificial, covenantal marriage and said, it's okay to divorce. It's just the same as breaking up. And the reason thousands of people like this, thousands, and maybe you know this, but if you ever scroll some, away from something on the Explore page, it's gone. And so the Spirit of God led me to this, and I forgot to screenshot it or save it, and so I got later that day, and I was like, I need to put that in the sermon, and I couldn't find that. And so I Googled the first line I knew, divorce is okay. I clicked on the images, and thousands of images exactly like this one attributed to all kinds of different people across all kinds of different social media sites with hundreds, if not thousands, of likes on almost all the pictures. And our culture is saying, end it whenever you want. It comes back to that freedom mentality. 
It also feeds into this idea that we've started to embrace where it's this practice mentality. It kind of works like this. We think, we've, we've, we've accepted the, mon- the mantra that practice makes perfect. Right? I, I went skiing for the first time last year. On my first time down the hill, I flopped. It was bad. Then Dylan taught me pizza. And so I was able to go down the bunny hill. What Dylan didn't teach me was pizza don't work on the actual hill. And so I went down the actual hill and it didn't go well. And I spent the whole first half of the day falling and falling and falling. By the second half of the day, I could kind of ski. And we take this practice makes perfect practice mentality into marriages. And so I'm going to push a couple buttons, but hang in there again. One of the ways we do this is we do it through cohabitation. That 60% of couples, and some say upwards of 70% of couples, will now live together before they get married. And I, again, logically get why we get there. Because I want to know if I like coming home to you. I want to know if you leave your socks on the floor. I want to know if you can put the lid on the peanut butter, which I can't do. My wife found that out. Like, we want to know these things. Like, is the hair gross in the drain? Can they do chores? Like, have they ever seen a broom? Like, we want to figure these things out. Like, I understand the logical thing behind that. But I sit there and I say, has nobody told them the actual stats? That for the 60 to 70% of couples that are cohabitating, your divorce rate is actually 40% 40 more likely? That yesterday, yesterday, this is the Spirit of God. Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal released an article talking about how detrimental cohabitation is to marriages. That the National Marriage Project from the University of Virginia actually linked cohabitation to less happiness in marriage. But we're practicing, right? Like, we should get better at it. But we don't just practice living together. We actually also practice sexual chemistry. Because if we're going to commit to someone for all of our life, and that's the only person we're going to have sex with for the rest of our life, I better be good when I get there, right? But has nobody told us? Has nobody told us that women with multiple sexual partners are three times less likely to find stable romantic relationships? Has nobody told us that pornography was cited in 56% of divorce cases last year? Has nobody told us that one out of every four married men will commit an adulterous act in their lifetime? But yet we're still practicing. We're still trying to figure it out. And we think we're practicing for marriage, and the whole time we're setting ourselves up for divorce. Too often we're trying to experience the benefits of marriage outside of the bounds of marriage. And all the while we do that, we're training ourselves for non-commitment. That... One day, if you, were, you, if you want and you find a significant other and you get married, maybe you'll have a moment where you sit on the couch and you look at them and you think, man, for the rest of my life, I'll be married to you and I will only live with you. And maybe you'll have a couple little ones run around, but that's it. It's just them. Or maybe you'll get in marriage and you'll start to practice sexual intimacy and you'll think, oh yeah, this is, this is awesome, year one. But then you get to year three and you're like, oh, you again? <laughs> I, I can't, like, nobody else? All right, all right, fine. Then you get to your five, and you're 10, and you're 15, but the whole time you were together, you've been lo- looking at pornography, and so your body's actually being trained for variety because you can actually pick whatever woman or man you want, but yet every single time, the same person in the bedroom. And no wonder we're struggling. You know that 41% of first-time marriages end in divorce? But at the same time, 60% of second marriages? 
third time marriages, 73% end in divorce, that you and your new partner, if you're both divorced, that you're actually 90% more likely to divorce again. That for us to take the divorce route, to remove God's design of it being lifelong, for us to reject the covenant, it's to practice this way of training for non-commitment. And it hurts people. We're a product of that. Mark 10, verses 2 through 9, is Jesus' one of his teachings on divorce. And I'm just going to read it to you. It says, Some Pharisees came, and they tested him by saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of a divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And Jesus calls us back to a radical, lifelong commitment. And the reason he does it is because God's intentional design was that way. It blows my mind that two of the biggest, most commonly taught passages in the New Testament on marriage, Paul in Ephesians 5 and Jesus here in Mark 10, both of them lay their arguments on the foundation of God's original design. And we step back and we see a culture that's ripped that apart. We got to get back to it. There was a point, probably in my first year of marriage, where I got the greatest piece of marriage advice I could ever have imagined in my life. And you're never going to believe who it came through. That guy, Ben, like, he like actually knows, he like, he's good at this stuff. He gave me this piece of a marriage advice. And he said simply this, three words. He said, remember the covenant. That was it. All he said was, remember the covenant. So simple. But incredibly powerful. Because in those three words, he called me back to the, the altar where I made my decision. He called me back to the vows that my wife and I exchanged. These traditional vows that I find so beautiful, it says, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness or in health, till death do us part. Because I have made this decision. And so though the waters may get turbulent, though times may get hard, no money might be tight, like no matter what, I'm with you. That's the commitment I have made. One final story. My parents have been married 34 years. Like, awesome. It's so good. Like, but when I was a little kid, my mom used to do this weird thing. <laughs> she would come up to me, and I, I don't remember the first time I remembered it, pretty little. And she would say, your dad and I, we're never getting divorced. And as a little kid, I was like, am I, am I supposed to be concerned? Like, what, what's going on here? Like, what are, you, are you prepping me for something? But she would say it. She'd say, I'm, we're never getting divorced. Not an option. Not on the table. Like, they'd be they'd like happy moments, and she would come up and say that to me. Like, throughout my lifetime, until I was probably in middle school, there was like this chunk of time where she consistently reminded me of that. But when she did that, she was only teaching me what I now know. She was teaching me that my, my dad and her, they always were going to remember the covenant. And it was one of the greatest gifts I probably ever could have gotten in my childhood. Because as I grew up, when times were tough, and things were hard, and money was tight, 
and I saw them fighting, and I saw them unhappy, and I saw them, them hurting, never once in my mind did it ever cross that they could get a divorce. Because time and time again, she reminded me she knew the covenant. My dad knew the covenant. It's the greatest piece of marriage advice, and 34 years later, I still see them modeling that. The last thing I need us to do is for us to move past the dark side of marriage, we, st- we have to start to heal the hurts. And earlier I had you raise your hands, and that's not just like some weird social experiment, but I want you to recognize that everybody in here, everyone that raised that hand, has some level of hurt that's attached to marriage and divorce. Some of us, those wounds are really deep. That our parents, they lied to us. Or they fought all the time in front of us. Or it was just, it was hard at home. Or maybe it's still hard at home. And there was maybe courtrooms involved. And now there's separate houses, houses and separate Christmases and other separate holidays. And there might be step-parents and there might be step-siblings. And there's all this confusion or hurt or pain. And in the middle of that, I just want to stop for a second and say, it is not your fault. But not for one second can you believe the lie from the enemy that that is your fault. That if your parents got a divorce or someone you know got a divorce, it is not your fault. Do not for a second believe that lie. But also don't believe the lie that you have to fix it. That that is a weight you are not meant to carry. That it is a burden you are not supposed to take upon yourself. That you are not at fault and it is not your job to fix it. But in the midst of that, you have a God who loves you and cares for you, and wants to heal every single one of those hurts. Psalm 30, verse 1 through 2, David says, I will exalt you, Lord, for you have lifted me out of the depths. You did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. Others of us in the room, our hurt isn't necessarily related to someone else. But maybe as I spoke tonight, you thought, oh, I've watched porn. I've cheated I've lied, I've cohabitated, I've had multiple sexual partners, and that list can be whatever. Or maybe it's, I'm still in that, I'm still doing that. And you start to believe again the lie that I'm too far gone, that my marriage is doomed, that I don't have a future or a hope. Don't for a second believe that lie. Because Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Doesn't that sound so good tonight? That in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our, in our hurt, in our pain, that even though we are stuck in some things, that times of refreshing can come from the Lord if we will turn and repent. Tonight I want to tell you that there is forgiveness and freedom in Christ. That the beauty of 2 Corinthians 5.17 can be true for you tonight. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old, it's gone. The new, it's here. You can cling to that tonight. Whatever you brought in, whatever you carry, whatever hurt you've experienced, whatever parent struggles that you have, you can be a new creation and begin to experience God's healing tonight. Lean into him. Cry out for help. Overall, I just want us to reject consumerism. I think if we do that and we start to embrace commitment, 
And if on top of all that we can heal the hurts, I think you and I can be a part of some generational change. I'll invite the team up. Final statistic, if your parents stay married, that you are actually 14% less likely to get divorced. Now that number is not mind-boggling to me. Maybe it is to you. But by God's grace, I could see it start to do this. That if we'll be a generation that returns to God's design, maybe our kids will be 14% less likely to get divorced. And maybe if we teach them God's design and we teach them what it looks like to embrace the covenant, if we teach them what it looks like to reject consumerism, if we heal their hurts, if we're a part of their lives teaching them what it looks like to follow Jesus, maybe they'll be 14% less likely. And their kids, and their kids, and their kids. And all of a sudden, in a night like tonight, by our simple decisions, we can be a part of a generational change that people beyond us won't have to carry the baggage and the hurt that we've had to carry. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm dreaming for. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to open your word. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the teaching that you give us on marriage and divorce. I pray that each and every person in here tonight would be able to throw off the chains and the hurt that so much accompanies this this section of romantic relationships now. God, I pray that we would step into your grace and your goodness tonight stepping into the fact that we are new creations, freed to to experience times of refreshing. That God, a moment like this would launch us into futures and future marriages that we will embrace the commitment that we will reject consumerism and we will follow your design. We love you. We thank you for tonight. We continue to worship you in Jesus' name.